on my microphone sock. This is hell. Sometimes the law is the crime. This is hell. In the late 1980s, Los Angeles was being terrorized by criminal gangs, and it wasn't only in Los Angeles. Everyone was becoming more and more aware of gangbangers as they were making their presence known more and more. There were the graffiti tags that were suddenly popping up, marking territories and front lines of turf wars. There was the flashing of hand signs, followed by the flash from barrels of guns and drive-bys. There were the tattoos inking gang members with pride of membership, and there were the gang clubhouses headquarters to play the weekends or to plan the weekend's gang-banging and rolling up on rivals and the ensuing violence and often death. Believe it or not, some gangs even had the audacity, the sheer audacity, to set up their clubhouses in Los Angeles area police stations. No, these weren't gangs like the Crips and the Bloods setting up shop at the cop shop. These were actual cops making up their own gangs with all the trappings of any street gang. The cops decided to fight fire with fire, and in the gang wars, that meant acting like and actually forming your own gangs for whatever reason. Soon, according to our guest today, cops had their own gangs like the Vikings and the cavemen, precursors to today's banditos. All gangs with only cops as members. At times, entire communities were terrorized, not only by street gangs, but by the sheriff's deputies gangs that were now in competition with each other. Deputy gangs would mark their territory with tags, mark their bodies with tattoos, flash their own signs, and do their their own drive-bys, targeting and killing those who would stand in their way, including any community member who would try to stand up to their extrajudicial tactics. Think about it. What do you do when you see a gang battle, and as you are calling it in to 911? You realize that one side is carrying badges. Who do you call then? The FBI? Guess again. We will have what I'm betting will be one of our most hellish conversations in quite a while here on This Is Hell when we talk to reporter Cerise Castle, author of the ongoing 15-part investigation series A Tradition of Violence, The History of Deputy Gangs in the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department, which appears at knockla.com knockla Cerise is a multimedia journalist specializing in arts and culture civil rights crime and human interest stories Cerise has produced and hosted segments for the Emmy Award winning nightly news program Vice News Tonight you can follow Cerise on Twitter at Cerise Castle and you can find out more about Cerise at CeriseCastle.me also on today's show we'll have the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell we'll tell you what's happening on our Patreon podcast tomorrow, Friday at 10 a.m. Chicago time at patreon.com slash this is hell and tell you what's happening on this is hell next week. Maybe, possibly, who knows? Producing is Alex Jerry. Alex, how's your week been so far? Uh, it's pretty good up until I realized that uh, the feral cat we feed outside Mel is now too good for Kirkland brand <laughs> cat food. 
Apparently everybody is. That cat food has been turned down by every cat around here. There's two different bartenders who have cats that have turned it down. Uh, Pete's own cats at homes have, home have uh, turned it down. My cats have turned it down. So, Alex, if you would like... He lives like, in a box three feet from me. He can't be doing There's that right something wrong with Kirkland that food, dude. Food. How, why, what... Please, nobody buy Kirkland brand <laughs> organic cat food. I have yet to see a cat eat it. Hey, I'm keeping all my options open. Let's <laughs> see how bad things get. <laughs> My week has been another freaking emotional roller coaster. I'm really, really getting sick and tired of people I love dying or nearly dying. And none of them are dying from what they're supposed to be dying from, and that's coronavirus. Thankfully, I do not know anyone who has died from the virus. The closest is several of my sister's neighbors who I do not know have passed away. Some have had COVID twice and a few are long haulers. But this death and near-death stuff has got to stop. It's forcing me to consider my own mortality and what I want to and what I should do with whatever time I have left on this planet. And that's not, not any fun. But I'll be talking about it probably on Patreon. More importantly, Alex, please remind us what's this week's question from hell for our listeners. This week's question from hell is, uh, what are you getting out of your Faustian bargain? What are you getting out of your Faustian bargain? <laughs> the person with our favorite answer to this week's question, I really liked a lot of the responses. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener supported This Is Hell. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell on our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us, but we have to have your answer by the end of today's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth. During this week's moment, Jeff reflects on how Godzilla and King Kong massacre our fear of massacres. Again, this week's question from hell. What are you getting out of your Faustian bargain? Your eyewitness to grief this is hell. We got an email from listener David this week who sent a guest suggestion. David writes, Hey, hope you will consider having Catherine Liu on to talk about her book, Virtue Hoarders, which is a great title, The Case Against the Professional Managerial Class. She's fantastic and names fresh hells in vivid ways, which is a great sentence. David. So thanks, David. Catherine was already on our radar, but for the life of me, I have no idea why her name sounded so familiar. According to her publisher's website, author Catherine Liu shows in her book how professional managerial class elite workers who labor in a world of performative identity and virtue signaling stand in the way of social justice and economic redistribution. Virtue Hoarders is an unapologetically polemical call to reject making a virtue out of taste and consumption habits, which that sounds really fascinating and it appears Catherine is currently doing the circuit of these lefty podcasts nobody has ever heard of you know like ours so I'm sure we can get Catherine on the show but there's something far more intriguing at the end of David's email David ends with I also left you a voicemail thanks which makes me question wait we have voicemail uh, so, David left this voicemail because, uh, I, you know, I don't know where he left this, because nobody, aside from Alex, my girlfriend, and Pete, who owns the bar downstairs, has our phone number up here. And nobody, not, not even me, I, I don't have the phone number to Alex's producer's booth. Maybe David called WNUR, our home radio station at Northwestern University. But I think that voicemail, I think that's actually an answering machine, and I think that filled up back in the aughts, and nobody's 
ever listened to it since, and I don't think they ever listened to it when they actually plugged that message machine in. That's when I saw that we actually do have a phone number posted on our Facebook page, and that number is 847-828-9682. 847-828-9682. It's a number we got a long time ago. It's actually our Google phone, phone number, I guess, so really it's just a glor- glorified online answering machine. Uh, we got the number a long time ago. Cheap, too. Apparently some sort of egg freezing clinic used to own the number, and nobody wanted to be associated with it, so we got 847-828-9682, which spells out 847-U-BY-OVA. So not only can you email us, message us via Facebook, DM us via Twitter, send something in the actual mail to us at this is hell 2251 West Devon, second floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. But you can also leave an actual voicemail by calling 847-828-9682. 847-828-9682, whether you need eggs frozen or not. Coming up, the L.A., the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department really scares the hell out of me. We'll also have Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth during this week's moment. Jeff reflects on how Godzilla and King Kong massacre our fear of massacres. Alex will also have more of our que- and your que- uh, Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what are you getting out of your Faustian bargain? Person with our favorite answer gets whatever piece of This Is Hell merchandise you want. All you have to do is go to thisishell.com and click on support to see all of the ways you can support This Is Hell. Live from the Nightmare of Want, this is hell. It appears that since the late 1980s, gangs have been terrorizing the people of the Southland who live within the jurisdiction of the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. But the problem for the people of the community is that not all the gangs are your typical street gangs where you can report them to the police. That's because some of the gangs are the police, and it's really hard to tell them apart. Here to blow our minds about the L.A. Sheriff's Department and gangbanging in general, reporter Cerise Castle is the author of the ongoing 15-part investigative series, A Tradition of Violence, the history of deputy gangs in the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department, which appears at knock-la.com. Welcome to This Is Hell, Cerise. Thank you so much for having me. This is absolutely amazing. You can follow Cerise on Twitter at Cerise Castle. You can find out more about Cerise at CeriseCastle.me. So is this investigation ever going to end? How many parts are you going to have in the series? Oh, wow. I don't think it will ever end. This is going to be a subject that I continue to investigate for the rest of my life, I believe. Yeah, it's really amazing. The one thing I want to make sure that people understand, it, well, let me just ask you, what do you think the likelihood is that this is only happening in with, within the Los Angeles, Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department? How, how likely do you think it is that this might be happening in you know, Sarasota, Florida, or Seattle, Washington, or wherever else? Well, I know for a fact that there is a motorcycle club called the Choir Boys that operates in all 50 states that is a... Well, we could call it a gang um, that operates in all 50 states, and it's made up of law enforcement. So this is a nationwide problem. And how much do you think that nationwide problem has contributed to uh, potentially more violence being conducted by the police? Are the police any more violent since this kind of beginning of uh, deputy gangs? 
Well, when we look at Los Angeles specifically, these deputy gangs, we know that they've existed since at least the early 1970s. And that's almost 50 years at this point. So here in LA, it's become so entrenched with how law enforcement is carried out. It's it's really one and the same. And, you know, I think that attitude of us versus them, you know, keeping the blue line, I think that's an attitude that's been adopted by law enforcement agencies across the country. So you point out that uh, you introduced your investigation by stating that there are at least 18 gangs within the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department, uh, officials at various government agencies, including the Los Angeles County Board of Supervisors, the Los Los Angeles County District Attorney, the California Senate uh, Senate Subcommittee on Police Officer Conduct and the United States Commission on Civil Rights have heard testimony on the violence inflicted on communities at the hands of deputy gangs for decades, and yet there have not been any internal investigations or significant policy changes to address the issue. So what explains that lack of investigations? Is, it, is there simply no political motivation or public pressure for those investigations? Does the public not know? What explains to you why there has yet to be any investigation? Well, I frankly just don't think that there's been any investigations because of a lack of political will. I mean, the police unions are very powerful and they exert a lot of pressure on politicians when they try to do something that said unions don't like. like. Like you mentioned, these gangs have been operating with the knowledge of several government agencies from local LA politicians all the way up to the federal government. And the most that has really happened are hearings. I don't think that that's any coincidence. I think, you know, at the end of the day, these police unions have a significant amount of power and they flex that power when it comes time to head to the ballot box. Does unquestioning public support for cops Do you think that leads to things like deputy gangs? Well, I think when you're looking at the deputy gangs here in L.A., um, the community has known about them for decades. I mean, I myself got interested in this because I grew up in Los Angeles and I can remember going back to childhood, hearing from people to you know, watch out for white deputies with shaved heads because that meant that they were likely Vikings. So this is, this is something the community has known about. I think that perhaps people were afraid to speak up because these gangs target people in, you know, low income areas. I know when we're looking at East Los Angeles specifically, there is a very high Um, immigrant population, some of which are undocumented, and the gangs will threaten people with deportation if they speak up. Uh, So I think it's really just the gangs knowing how to manipulate the system to keep themselves in power. You said that these gangs started, you dated it back to the 1970s. They seem to have really expanded, exploded in the late 1980s, and that's around the time when the whole world was learning about the intense amount of Los Angeles gang violence, street gang violence that was happening at that time. To what extent do you think the deputy gangs either exacerbated or contributed to that explosion in gang violence in the late 1980s? What do we miss in our understanding of that gang violence when we don't recognize that deputy gangs were involved as well? 
Well, one interesting point that has come up in my research um, is the advent of the drive-by shooting. It's speculated by many, many elders in the neighborhoods in South and East Los Angeles that the police were actually the ones who popularized uh, that way of killing people, which went on to take hundreds, even thousands of lives in the ensuing years. And in my research and in a history or a tradition of violence, I actually write about some, some of these drive-bys that were carried out by deputy gangs. So that doesn't really seem too far off to me. Um, when you're looking at violence that was going on in the eighties, like a lot of, a lot of this stuff was being done by police officers. Uh, like for example, if we look at the raids at 39th and Dalton that were carried out in 1988. Uh, these were raids done by the Los Angeles Police Department on the homes of what they claimed to be gang members. Uh, I believe upwards of 10 families were displaced, their homes were completely destroyed, and the Red Cross was actually brought in to rehabilitate the neighborhood. Uh, so we, we, we hear a lot about street gangs um, doing this horrible violence in that decade, which, yes, that, that was definitely happening. But I really think we need to take a, close, a closer look at what influence law enforcement had in all of that. And you mentioned somebody who was trying to fight back against these deputy gangs, a gentleman by the name of Lloyd Polk, and how he was the victim of a drive-by, and mysteriously there was a patrol car, a Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department patrol car around the corner with its lights off, doing absolutely nothing, not pursuing the drive-by shooter, and then coming in to talk to the people very slowly and slowly going back to his car and reporting the shooting. That really that story really scared the hell out of me cerise and i just got to ask you do have you what what reaction have you had to this investigation do you have any fear for your own safety because there's so many people in your writing who have fought back against the los angeles county sheriff's department and then either been shot or shot at yeah my safety is definitely a concern um it's i've had to leave my house for a number of weeks at one point, I received multiple death threats. Um, to me, those are the hallmarks of a good story and a job well done. Wow. Uh, those are hallmarks to a great story, and you should be congratulated for it because this really is amazing. You write that under Section 186.22 of the California Penal Code, a criminal gang is described as any organization or group of three or more people that has a common name or identifying sign or symbol. So, are deputy gangs so brazen or so stupid as to have a sign or symbol to identify themselves as gang members? And why would they single themselves out in that way, actually bringing attention to their gang affiliation? Well, they know that they're going to get away with it. They know that they won't face any consequences, really. Uh, these gangs all have tattoos that they share in common. All of them feature a skeleton. Some of them have gang signs that they flash at people. And it, it's very brazen. They know that they can get away with it. So they do it. So do deputy gangs, do they commit crimes of opportunity, opportunities that are created by and on the job while policing? What what kind of crimes are they involved in? Well, I, I 
wrote about one case where a young man was actually killed in his house by a deputy sheriff. And the deputy sheriff who killed him had actually been involved a few months prior in a botched raid on a medical marijuana dispensary where he was later found to have planted evidence. Um, when he carried out this, uh, when he showed up at this man's house, who he later killed a few months later, it was speculated that he did that because he knew that this man was a uh, black market uh, cannabis dealer. And that is why he wanted to go to this man's house and perhaps target him to take advantage of this man's wares, his money, um, that type of thing. After the man was killed, the street surrounding his house was closed down for about 24 hours. And the attorneys told me that once they went inside the house, there was weaponry rec recovered, there were scales recovered, but there wasn't any cannabis recovered, which they thought was incredibly suspicious. I would say that's very, very suspicious. You go back to the origins of these gangs, and you write how Peter Pitches, the uh, 28th sheriff of L.A. County, oversaw a new wave of aggressive expansion and modernization. Following his election in 1958, he introduced policies that drove disproportionate violence towards black and Latinx communities and whose legacies persist today. Billy clubs, helicopters, freeway pursuits, and the county's first SWAT team. The freshly armed forces were on full display on August 29th, 1970, a day that haunted pitches for the rest of his career, the Chicano Moratorium. So again, this is 1958 modernization and a set of policies against black and Latinx communities. Were these policies in reaction to civil rights victories won by people of color? And is it during this time of intensified police violence that deputy gangs emerged? Are deputy gangs in opposition to civil rights expansion. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a very solid connection to make. I mean, you know, it was shortly after the modernization um, of the department that we saw the um, Watts uprising in 1965. Uh, we see the Chicano moratorium in 1973. I I definitely think that you know, the sheriff's department um, saw this going on and, you know, used that as a means to recruit more people, uh, employ more people, um, give their personnel more weapons and more training in um, brutalization, frankly, of civilians. Uh, yeah, I, I definitely think the two are linked. If we look at where deputy gangs form, they're primarily in areas where people of color live. And many of these gangs have white supremacist themes about them as well. So you mentioned how during the Chicano moratorium, uh, one of the four people who was killed was journalist and law enforcement critic Ruben Salazar. And Deputy Thomas Wilson, who fired the first shot, was never disciplined for his actions. Salazar's death ignited criticism of the department and resulted in the longest coroner's inquest in the county's history. Salazar's family eventually settled with the county for $700,000. However, three years later, in an internal memo, 
Department management acknowledged the first deputy gang, the Little Devils. Members allegedly inflicted violence on demonstrators during the Chicano moratorium. Captain R.D. Campbell compiled a list of 47 known members with the signature Red Devil tattoo, but it isn't clear if anyone was disciplined. So are deputy gangs then the the violent racist wing of the county police department that's called in when municipalities are seeking help, like help with a peace rally? Oh, 100%. Yes. I mean, and one thing about these deputy gangs is they're so heavily entrenched in the department. You'll, you'll find members really anywhere. I mean, they form in the South and Eastern parts of the County, but members are transferred throughout Los Angeles. So, you know, I've, I've heard reports of deputies that started out in, you know, at a gang as members of gangs in South Los Angeles and who are now working in Malibu, which is a very affluent, um, predominantly white area. So you, you don't have to be in a community of color to come face to face with a deputy gang member. So is, I don't want to just keep expanding on the same thing, but uh, so is, are these deputy gangs then, are they the white supremacist wing of the police department? Oh, yeah. And I think that, you know, when we're looking at how policing is carried out, that's uh, it's really built on, you know, ideals of white supremacy. Police were, you know, invented to protect capital and capital at that time was other people. And, you know, that culture has continued to persist in policing. Uh, black and brown bodies are frankly, not treated as humans in most instances and are treated as property or as things. And I think that's definitely a part of why we see so many people killed at the hands of law enforcement. And we've seen this growing dynamic of instead of police serving and protecting, uh, giving each other the impression that they are actually at war with the public. Do deputy gangs in any way contribute to that sense that the people they are supposed to be serving and protecting are their enemies? 100%. I think that deputy gangs are uh, just just an outgrowth of that attitude of that every resident in the community that these deputies are supposed to be serving and protecting is a potential criminal. Here in Los Angeles, deputies that are newly graduated from the academy spend their first assignments in the jails, which we know are home to one of the biggest deputy gangs called the 3000 Boys. So they're getting trained in this gang environment and then they're going out on the streets and they're joining gangs at the station. And they just keep that attitude that, you know, it's us against them where those people out there are criminals and it's our job to keep them in line. What do you mean by them operating within jails? Are these police officers or deputy gang members who have been arrested or people who are operating as guards? What do you mean? How are these police gangs operating in jails? So here in Los Angeles County, our jails are run by the sheriff's department. So they are in charge of custody and operations and one gang that I reported on, the 3000 Boys, is uh, has formed within that jail, and it's made up of deputies who are actually running jail operations. 
Sorry, I was spitting up my coffee at that point. That's really, really frightening. Uh, I've had several police officers here in Chicago, members of the CPD, tell me, uh, I've asked them, you know, so are you guys freaked out? This is especially in the early 90s. Are you guys freaked out about the situation with gangs? And <clears throat> every one of them have said the exact same thing to me. And every time I hear it, it's more more frightening. And that is, don't worry, the Chicago Police Department is the toughest gang in the city of Chicago. What happens to policing when the police view themselves as a gang? Yeah, I mean, that that frightens me too. It's frightening when the people that are supposed to be keeping the law view themselves as criminals. That That's unjust, and I don't think that's how law enforcement should be viewing themselves. What's the impact of deputy gangs on the police blue code of silence? Is there even more of a blue code of silence when there are deputy gangs? Yeah, I think that the blue code of silence, again, just really helps keep these deputy gangs in place. Uh, the blue code of silence basically is that you never uh, tell on a fellow officer that you have to always protect your brother in blue. And that really lends itself to deputy gangs and it allows themselves to keep power and to take over stations and to really run the department. And you were mentioning the racial aspect of them. You write that the culture of gangs carefully curated at the East L.A. station soon found its way into other parts of the county. That is that these logos were appearing on L.A. station uh, walls. In 1990, a new group formed within the Peter J. Pitches Detention Center, then known as the Wayside Honor Rancho. The Wayside Whitey's alleged mission was to bring to heel any incarcerated black men, especially those who fought with white prisoners. So how often are the deputy gangs racial in nature because you also mentioned earlier when you're discussing the cavemen uh, that it has some multiracial makeup yeah well race is definitely always a factor and i think that this is just further evidence that you don't need to be white to buy into white supremacy and it, it sort of goes back to what we were just talking about with the blue coat of silence how you always need to protect a fellow officer your brother in blue I, I think, and I think that many people who I've spoken with have expressed this as well, that police officers oftentimes see themselves as their own kind, their own race, even, if you will, their own kind of people. And the loyalty sort of, sort of becomes aligned with with that group rather than the community that you're a part of, rather than these deputy gang members, rather than thinking of themselves as Angelinos, as Californians, they'd see themselves as executioners, grim reapers, uh, 3000 boys. So what do you think is the attraction to people of color, police of color who want who become members of these gangs? Because you even point out how if it is a Latinx or a black uh, member, they get a different tattoo, a racialized tattoo. And I'm betting that that racialized tattoo is not all that sensitive. Yeah, I I genuinely think it's uh, just wanting to fit in. Um, it's incredibly hard to be to even remain in the sheriff's department if you don't submit to the gang culture at a minimum. 
um, it's expected that even if you're not a member of the gang, that you have to enforce the law as they see fit. And I've spoken to deputies that either have been forced to leave the department for fear of their lives, really, for speaking out against this stuff, um, or people that are still there and they're desperately trying to figure out a way to fix the situation without endangering themselves or their families. When we hear about, I was just thinking about this, uh, Cerise, when we hear about rotten apples in the police department, is that what the gangs are? Are the gangs the ones that they always point to as, or gang members, uh, the ones that they always point to as rotten apples? I think that the whole tree is rotten. Yeah, I would tend to agree with that. You uh, also described the beating of Clydell Crawford on December 2nd, 1989, a 21-year-old Crawford was incarcerated at the Wayside Honor Rancho. He got into an argument with another inmate who was white. The man swung at him and Crawford swung back. I got the better of him, he remembers. But someone started, alerted the uh, sheriff's deputies. Crawford says a deputy came into his barracks, handcuffed him, and put him against the wall. Several other officers gathered around them. Then you quote Crawford saying, He didn't ask me what happened. He just said he's going to teach me about beating up on white guys. And that's when they all started. They had a black officer there. He didn't help me. Then they targeted my leg, and they were yelling, wayside whiteies. You add, at this time, he had no idea what that meant. So what does that say to you about these gangs? What does that reveal to you about these gangs? If they're not known by the larger community, yet they want people like Clyde L. Crawford to know he is being beaten by wayside whiteies. Well, I mean, that really, that sounds like any sort of gang, criminal street gang beating that you might hear about um, in a sort of urban folk legend that sounds like textbook. Um, I've heard anecdotally other stories like that of women who have been out traveling, who have been hit on by deputy gang members that are flashing their gang tattoos at them. Um, You know, we just heard about the deputies that were involved um, in the Kobe Bryant crash. Um, We don't know if these are deputy gang members, but they were showing photos of uh, Mr. Bryant and his daughter to patrons at a bar to as just sort of like uh, trophies from from battle, if you will. Um, So. Gosh, I. I'm sorry. I sort of lost my train of thought there. I was just wondering, you know, why are they, why would they wayside whiteies? Why do they want Clyde L. Crawford to know? Why do they want you to know? I, I really just think it's braggadocio. Um, They, and it's the knowledge that they, they can do this stuff and not get away with it. They want to be seen as the most rough and tough, um, hard charging guy. That's how they, move up. That's how they get accepted in their social circles. So does the police acting like a gang, has that had any success on diminishing gang violence in Los Angeles County? No. Okay. So that hasn't had any success. We've seen that it hasn't had any success and it hasn't had any success for at least the 35 years that it's been taking place. Then what explains why it continues if it's a failed program? Well, (laughs) that's a great question. I'm not sure I've got the answer to that one. 
<laughs> See, I should have saved that for the end for our question from hell. So you write that Caldwell's <laughs> attorney, uh, who was uh, Caldwell hired attorney George V. Denny III, Crawford never went back to uh, Wayside. It's unclear if any of the deputies who participated in the attack on Crawford were ever disciplined. You write that Caldwell's attorney, uh, he, uh, or Clydewell's, Clydell's, uh, Denny, and the police misconduct lawyer referral service retained a David Lynn, a former Marine who just returned to L.A. after several years abroad investigating human rights violations for various organizations, including the United, United Nations, to look at the wayside whiteys. And you also, you quote the investigator Lynn saying, the county just keeps throwing money at the defendants and the lawyers. It's a business because all of these cases, none of them ever make it to trial. That's, a, that's what they want to avoid is trial because of any revelations that might come out about these deputy gangs. So are law firms representing police violence victims as well as the district attorney incentivized in any way to not have these cases get to court? I wouldn't say so. I think that it really depends on the situation. Um, sometimes it may be in a family's best interest to settle and leave Los Angeles because they are receiving harassment to the point that they don't feel safe and they want to leave. Um, other people, they want to take it all the way to trial in order to, you know, help some of those revelations get out and they end up losing. So it's, it's a gamble. And, and I really think you need to look at each family situation to sort of get an understanding of why the decisions are made. Yeah. And you point out how Clyde L. Crawford, he settled for $60,000 and signed an affidavit that he wouldn't pursue any action on residual injuries because uh, he chose to settle because his father was ill with colon cancer. But you uh, quote Clyde L. Crawford also saying they got away with it. I've told people throughout my life about the incident. A lot of people just can't believe that police officers were evil. I mean, they really are. Do you think we feel more safe when we believe that the police are not as... Clydell calls them evil. Does believing in cops just make us feel more safe? Is that a, is that why we have this kind of denialism about police violence? Because it just gives us a, maybe a false sense of security? I think so. I think so. One thing that um, people who have read this series have all told me is how scared they all feel now after reading it. And I agree. It's It's frightening to just to learn how deep this goes, how high up in the department it goes, and how many people have known about it for so long with no action being taken. How high has it gone up in the department, and does the department reward you for acting like a deputy gang member? 100%. We've seen deputy gang members with tattoos reach the second in command of the department. That was Paul Tanaka. And Lee Baca, he was affiliated with several deputy gang members, and he was the sheriff for a number of years, uh, over 10 years before he was indicted. And he and Tanaka were both convicted of obstruction of justice, and they now sit in a federal prison. But that hasn't really been any kind of deterrent to these deputy gang members, because 
many of the members are still in the department today and they get promoted and they receive bonuses and they get the choice assignments that are uh, uh, craved by all in the department. And they see that these people are able to operate as gang members and they don't ever see any consequences for that behavior. You also mentioned the murder of 21-year-old Hong Pyo Lee and describe how Hong was driving through the Compton area in the early morning hours of March 8th, 1988. And then these deputy gang members shot Lee nine times in the back, killing him. Long Beach police officers who were there witnessing the whole event, uh, one by the name of Richard R. Boatwright, turned to his partner and said, we just observed the sheriffs execute somebody. How would you describe the relationship between the local municipalities police departments, like the Long Beach Police Department, and the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department? Do Are, are municipalities police uh, forces, are they leery of bringing in the Sheriff's Department? How do they feel about the Sheriff's Department? Not at all. Um, I am an active member or rather lurker of several um, law enforcement forums and social media groups. And even just looking at public profiles for these police departments, they big up each other all the time. Um, There's a lot of collaboration that happens between them when you're looking at task forces and criminal investigations. Uh, The Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department is viewed by many law enforcement agencies in Southern California as really the most um, hard charging, like, oh man, there's a word I want to say here, but I'm not sure if it's radio appropriate, Um, but really the baddest MFers. There you go. It's more than appropriate. (laughs) The person who would edit that out is sitting right here. So when we play it on air, that won't... Get through. You know, one of the things I want to ask you about is military experience. We have seen so many people go from the military directly into the police department. Do you think that military experience in any way encourages police to feel like they are at war with the public? I think it definitely helps. I think that, you know, our police departments receive so many military style weapons and vehicles definitely helps. Um, The interesting thing about it is that many of the whistleblowers that I've come across um, have military experience. So that's an interesting dynamic that um, these honor recruits, as they are called, um, come in and they observe this stuff happening and they are quick to turn around and say, this isn't right. You also mentioned how gang members, deputy gang members, they harass other deputies who are not within the gang. Uh, Why the provocation and does it work to recruit people into the gang or does it just work to make people want to leave the police? It's it's really a little bit of both. I mean, when you look at the Vikings, um, many people were harassed by the Vikings and they eventually all ended up being a station, a station full of gang members. Others um, like Art um, Art Gonzalez, who's a whistleblower against um, the Banditos, I believe he, you know, he he fought very hard to not um, conform to the gang's program. And he's still fighting today um, to keep his job and, you know, and is facing harassment. So it, it 
it really depends. But I, I would say that the vast majority of uh, deputies in the sheriff's department uh, are silent on the gang issue. You also mentioned that uh, this one part that I just want to make sure I point out before we go. You write that in 1989, Captain Bert Cueva arrived at the Linwood station and publicly pledged to phase out the Viking symbol after a resident expressed concern over how it was perceived in the majority people of color and neighborhood. But the Vikings continue to oust their superiors after Cueva ordered the transfer of alleged Vikings for sued him for discrimination. Clifford Yates, a deputy at the Linwood station during his this time, recalls in his book, deputy, 35 years as a deputy sheriff from upstate New York to L.A. He writes, we were all transferred to what would be considered choice assignments. The problem in our view was that in lieu of what was said in the newspaper articles, our transfers would link us to deputies that had been involved in misconduct and we were the cancer that needed to be cut out. But as you point out, Yates may very well have been the cancer as you quote him describing his time in law enforcement as Hunting for humans, it's a lot of fun. Now, Yates refused to speak with you about this series, but do you think people like Yates see themselves as the cancer? Sure, there may be a sense that they don't care, but to what extent do you think they realize their impact on the community that they are supposed to serve? I don't think they realize. And one thing that has truly frightened me and what keeps me up at night is the lack of empathy that I've seen from some deputies. Um, one deputy that really exemplifies that, I think, is Craig Ditch, who uh, was responsible for putting an innocent uh, teenager in prison, a uh, man by the name of Frankie Carrillo. And he served 20 years in prison for a crime that he didn't commit, uh, that Deputy Ditch essentially uh, set him up for. And when Ditch was asked, Frankie was eventually exonerated and he was released and he received a $10 million settlement from the County of Los Angeles for uh, what he experienced. And Ditch was asked about Frankie's release and what he thought about it. And he said that he didn't care because people like Frankie would go on to commit more crimes and that is just job security for him. You also point out how the investigator, David Lynn, he takes what the evidence that he has found of these deputy gangs within the Los Angeles County uh, Sheriff's Department. He, uh, you know, takes all this evidence to the superior, their superiors and nothing is done with it. So eventually he decides that he's just going to contact the FBI. Who else does he have left to contact? So Lynn does contact the FBI, but his colleagues are livid. Why be upset with Lynn giving this information to the FBI? Because I think I would do the same thing in, given the situation. I mean, you, this law enforcement agency isn't going to help me out. I, I would assume that the larger one would help me out. Yeah, well, in that case, the FBI ended up flipping the investigation and turning it on David Lynn. And, you know, he wasn't expecting that. I mean, David Lynn had a lot of faith in the Federal Bureau of Investigations. Um, and I, I think like like many of us, we would think that that's who you would call to really come in and, you know, really shake things up and clean, clean house. But that wasn't the case. Lynn ended up being viewed as a criminal himself and subject to a federal investigation. Um, 
So, I mean, it just goes to show you that you really, when it comes to law enforcement, the blue coat of silence is, is very real and it applies to many branches of law enforcement. And it's something that I think the public needs to be aware of and wary of. We have been speaking with reporter Cerise Castle. She is the author of the ongoing 15-part investigation investigative series, A Tradition of Violence, The History of Deputy Gangs in the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department, which appears at knock-la.com. You can follow Cerise on Twitter at Cerise Castle, and you can find out more about Cerise at CeriseCastle.me. One last question for you, Cerise, and as we do with all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask you might hate to, hate to answer, or our audience will hate your response. You write, well, at Lock, uh, Knock LA, there's an opinion piece by Liam Fitzpatrick headlined, We Need to Abolish the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. Reform is not an option for this law enforcement organization. So, my question from Al for you, Cerise, is can we end racialized police violence to the level that it's at right now? Can we address it? without addressing deputy gangs, gangs that are in police departments across the United States? Absolutely not. So what happens if we refuse to address those gangs? Because everybody seems to be in denial about these gangs existing. We're going to continue to see more lives lost, unfortunately. We're going to see more lives lost, more bones broken, more families destroyed, and more lives traumatized. And on that point of families destroyed, you even point out how, you know, this Lloyd Polk, his son, uh, 15 years after he's assassinated by a deputy gang, they go and tell his son in 2005, hey, we want you to know we know who your father was. So do deputy gangs then criminalize families for life? Uh, Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, at least they're serving and protecting, right? So they say. Yeah. Cerise, this is absolutely stunning work, and you should be commended. And count on us annoying you for the rest of your life to get you back on the show to talk about this more in depth. I really, this is really fantastic work, and I really appreciate you being on our show today. Happy to do it. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Take care, Cerise. You too. Keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996. This is hell. How are you feeling, Alex? That really freaked me out. <sighs> if you want to help us climb out of our debt, you can subscribe to tomorrow's Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. Become a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell and get exclusive access to our weekly Patreon podcast, which streams live every Friday at 10 a.m. Chicago time. This podcast shortly after on Patreon tomorrow. Death. Freaking death. Like many of you during the pandemic, like all of us, unless we are in some kind of deep denial filled with a lack of care for others. It's hard to not think about death a lot more than before this freaking virus. With death, there is no future. And for those left behind on this planet, after the loved one has gone, their future without those who have passed drastically changes. A new future has to be created, one that does not have the deceased contributing and taking part. Beyond that, death is a reminder of our own mortality, that our time here is limited. So you better enjoy it while we can. Now all we have to do is figure out what we're supposed to do at that time. How the hell do you enjoy this life? So for me, it's all about the dying, the living. 
Meanwhile, on Monday's show, we spoke with Rich Woodall, who wrote the Baffler article on Hypnosis Songs Fund Limited, which is turning every song into a commodifiable investment, meaning get ready to have a lot more nostalgic music in your life. Old fart music repackaged by pop stars so they can no longer have to pay those pesky songwriters, and they can just regurgitate old songs instead of producing anything original. Hypnosis recently bought the rights to every song by Blondie. And yes, Miley Cyrus is going to pay Hypnosis to do an all-Blondie cover album, including a duet with Deborah Harry, which sounds god-awful. That's when I remembered that we actually interviewed a member of Blondie. We actually had a member of Blondie on our show back in June 2003, Gary Lockman, a.k.a. Gary Valentine, as he was known when he was the bassist for Blondie. After Blondie, okay, Gary still performs with Blondie when they do play, but you know what I mean. After Blondie, Gary wrote several books focusing on the occult. When we spoke with Gary, it was to talk to him about his most recent book at the time, Turn Off Your Mind, The Mystic Sixties, and The Dark Side of the Age of Aquarius, which had just been uh, published in paperback. In that book, Gary wonders how the Sixties went from the summer of love to the murders by the Manson family and at Altamont. How did something so beautiful become so ugly so fast? But you can only hear my struggle with confronting death and Blondie's bassist reconsider the 60s by becoming a subscriber on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. Thanks to our newest subscribers on Patreon, including Riley and Jacob. In a few minutes, Jeff Dorchin will be delivering a moment of truth during this week's moment. Jeff reflects on how Godzilla and King Kong massacre our fear of massacres. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this, today's show is Alex Jerry. Alex, please remind us what is this week's question from hell, and do you have more answers? Uh, yeah, but first, hold on. Speaking of uh, death and old fart music, I had my kid had a meltdown in the backseat of the car when I had to inform him that Bill Evans was dead. <laughs> <laughs> Ridiculous conversation we have with the child. <laughs> Is he the last one to find out? Uh, yeah, he also does not. He, I had to lie to him too and say that Bill Evans led a uh, long and healthy life <laughs> instead of dying of cirrhosis and untreated hepatitis. Uh, kid still does not know Johnny Cash is dead yet, so I'm seeing how long I can write that. Uh, this week's question from hell is: What are you getting on your end of the Faustian bargain? What are you getting from your Faustian bargain? Kim G says sidewalk cash. <laughs> Uh, Jeffy e. D says an all-night expense paid trip to the bathroom in the middle of the night. Nice. And uh, via DM, Twitter, email, etc., etc., etc. Flying Needle says fourteen hundred dollars, a sore arm, so-called immunity, and a pocket full of GPS. <laughs> that is a good one. Adam B says I would never sell out. Now, if you'll excuse me, I have to finish my lunch and get back to my job with the government. <laughs> Neil C says a stairway to hell. Yee Hoax says same thing as everyone else: lower back pain. <laughs> A.T. Moore says, not quite sure what I've bargained away, but a Krispy Kreme opened in our neighborhood while I was gone. Weary face emoji. Rock Taster says, to live an American dream. And finally, Simon A.G. says, my Faustian bargain would be for fully automated luxury gay space communism. Have you yet to have a Krispy Kreme donut? Yeah, that's fine. There's just certain things that I have that I know everybody supposedly has had that I have not. Krispy Kreme donut, I've never been to a Sonic. I've never been to an Applebee's. I don't have any intention on being them to them, but I think that everybody else has. Have you been to both those restaurants? No. Okay, good. <laughs> good. 
You can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we have to have your answer by the end of the moment of truth with Jeff Dorchin, which is coming up right now. For people living in Los Angeles, I want to say that the absolute best donut I've ever had was the uh, butter and salt donut from Sidecar Donuts, which has only ever been brought to me... uh, hours and hours and hours old for my wife whenever she would go to L.A. So if you're uh, in L.A., try the butter and salt donut from Sidecar Donuts. It might be even better if you don't wait nine hours to eat it. There's a, you know, that famous Randy's Donuts that's at the corner where my uh, brother lives, and I was super excited about trying one of their donuts. Crap. Pretending to know what I'm talking about since 1996, this is how I know you have a family. One, two, you know what to do. Godzilla of Tokyo, King Kong of Saigon. Welcome to the moment of truth, the thirst that is the drink. The Paris Commune, 150 years old, was born last month in 1871, a mere 82 years after the French Revolution and only two years before the first Impressionist exhibition. A fact that stuns me for some reason. An entire city rose up in utopian revolution, short-lived, brutally crushed by the government, and only two years later they're wandering through a vast gallery with their beards and top hats, their stylish fashions, their lorgnettes and monocles, looking at soft-focused landscape paintings, while outside on the streets, street performers and balloon sellers amuse the passing throngs. For five or so months prior to the commune's birth, under orders from donut inventor Otto von Bismarck, The Prussian army had bombarded the city with cannons and starved it of incoming supplies. The French government had abdicated defense of the city. The last representative of the government had escaped the surrounded city in a balloon, leaving Parisians to face the Prussian forces on their own. The government, having moved itself to Tours, surrendered and even allowed the Prussians to stage a victory parade through Paris. As far as Parisians were concerned, the Prussians had only won the war of attrition through attrition, which wasn't only not fair, but wasn't an actual victory. As a result, Paris was less than happy with the French government, setting the table with the perfect conditions for an anti-government rebellion. The communards immediately went about trying to set up an equitable society, independent of the backward values of the government, albeit they were a society under siege. Their besieged condition hindered a lot of their ability to accomplish a lasting egalitarian society, but so did their 19th century mentality. Not a single woman had a seat on the committee that made decisions for the commune. But the women did fight at the barricades alongside the men, and for some reason got a reputation as wielders of flaming projectiles, though they were no more nor less apt to use fire as a weapon than the men were. It was just... One of those weird legends that grew up around the fighting women of the commune. I'm sure there's a psychosexual reason for it. The commune was destroyed mainly by three misfortunes. Their accountant convinced them with defeatist economic theory that they were broke. They finally ran out of horses, dogs, cats, and rats to eat. And the French military breached their barricades and crushed them. It was a triple whammy. 
The last 147 communards defending the commune were executed in Père Lachaise Cemetery at the communards' wall, which at that time was known simply as a wall. The embattled commune had existed for a mere two months. And a couple of years later, Monet and friends unveiled their oeuvre. Last month was also the 53rd anniversary of the Mylai Massacre. As Ronaldo Magaldi informed us in his Facebook Rotten History post a couple weeks ago, I remember hearing about the My Lai Massacre a few years after the fact, when I was a kid. It was in the air. Knowledge of U.S. brutality against the civilian population of Vietnam was in the air. There were reports of other massacres, including in the book The People's Almanac, which was a truly strange collection of fascinating journalism, fortean oddities, fun facts, and legitimate history. Another notable massacre which occurred a year after my lie was the one at Tan Fong, which you can read about at the Old Moment of Truth website at mejeffdorchin.oblivio.com. The link will be in the transcript. The World Socialist website reported it in 2002, a year after I did, when the government of Vietnam made public accusations of war crimes against Bob Carey, senator from Nebraska from 1989 till 2001, and also accused him of downplaying the injustice of the attack he had led in his memoirs, which had recently been published. Another member of the SEAL team who participated in the atrocity spoke up and gave a more brutal, incriminating account of the mass murder. The Vietnamese government's accusations against Kerry regarding Tan Phong came only a year after 9-11. The Republicans have been doing their best to try to cure the U.S. public of their Vietnam War trauma and the bad name those atrocity-drenched years had given war in general. Reagan started by floating trial balloons, like the attacks on Grenada and Libya, backing the Mujahideen in Afghanistan and the Contras in Nicaragua. Then the first Bush invaded Panama. There were proxy wars everywhere, of course, and the first invasion of Iraq. But nothing succeeded in wrapping the people in the warm embrace of nostalgic Churchillian bellicosity, like the suicidal jihadis using airplanes full of civilians to bring down a World Trade Center full of civilians. Intraspecies genocide, ethnocide, and other massacres of humans by humans constitute a hallmark of our species as idiosyncratic as symbolic language, worship of divine projections of ourselves, art for art's sake, and tool-making. These massacres set us apart from other animals. They are integral to our economy, creating markets for weapons and explosives. The U.S. government budget suckles many lucrative industries by encouraging, provoking, committing, or threatening massacres. And that is far from the only way massacres are woven into human existence, rather than being anomalous bumps on the road of what we imagine to be human progress. History is the history of war. War is a massacre delivery system, the way hot dogs are a sodium delivery system. Massacres are sacred. Memorializing the 1937 Japanese massacre of the people of Nanjing, China, is a sacred component in the national identity of the Chinese people. Ronaldo noted in a comment on his rotten history that the recent mass shootings targeting female Asian massage parlor employees in Atlanta took place on the anniversary of the My Lai Massacre. The Ruby Ridge shootout is another anniversary the massacre-loving members of society like to commemorate by committing other massacres. Numbers and dates connected to Adolf Hitler, 
the poster boy for 20th century genocide in the name of racial purity, are sacred to fascist revivalists. Massacres are part of the religious imagination. The massacres of the people of Hiroshima and Nagasaki by U.S. President Harry S. Truman gave rise to the divine entity, Godzilla. Godzilla was a comfort to the Japanese, who'd been through the world's only nuclear holocaust. He was a comfort because he made sense out of the catastrophe. It was man's environmental recklessness that awakened him, or the hubris of Japan's wartime leaders, something rather than meaningless human inhumanity to humans. Catastrophe became as a god in which we stored our fears, and Godzilla spawned other guards, the pantheon of kaiju monsters, Gamera, Ghidra, Mothra, et all. They are colossal circus freaks. Catastrophe is a sideshow. Big-time dramatic wrestling between giant monuments to disaster. Meanwhile, or rather a decade or so earlier, on far-flung isolated Skull Island, a much less prolifically exploited franchise was looming over a screaming blonde woman tied spread eagle, almost. I mean, she would have been, but for the threat of the Hayes Codes, a giant stop-motion gorilla named Kong was treated like a god by the racist stereotypes who danced for him behind an enormous locked gate. In the 1930s, the people of the U.S. hoped to remain as isolated as Skull Island. They were isolationists, and they eventually hoped to remain, like Kong, out of contact with the rest of the world, particularly the Japanese. Of course, we all know what a disaster it was when Kong was brought to New York, and what a disaster it was when the Japanese made the idiotic choice to attack Pearl Harbor, bringing on the revenge of G.I. Joe. The last King Kong movie before the current one, Kong, Skull Island, starring expressive-eyed Brie Larson, wiggly-browed Tom Wiggleston, and Samuel L. Go-the-fuck-to-sleep Jackson, attempted to be a metaphor for the Vietnam War, and much like the Vietnam War, it failed. And now we have Godzilla vs. Kong, the spectacular battle, the trauma of Japan versus the trauma of Vietnam, or maybe only the trauma of the U.S. soldier in Vietnam. Any way you frame it, it represents two holocausts in competition to see who is the more dramatic. Or is it three? There's more to analyze than I have time for now. We stroll through life, those of us lucky enough to be able to stroll, rather than run for our lives, dive behind rubble, hide in a sanctuary, serpentine to avoid being strafed, hunker in a bunker, dodge oncoming rhinoceros stampedes, etc. We strollers, we stroll, as if disasters, human-made and otherwise, were rare, spectacular, if tragic happenings. That they are part of the everyday is a fear residing deep inside us, intimately connected with the awareness that surfaces on occasion of our own mortality. Yemen, Syria, Myanmar, the coast of Greece, to name only a few. Inhumanity against the unlucky by the luckier goes on all the time. What you deeply wish wouldn't happen is already happening, and our global psychosexual ecology and economy have evolved to make sure we who aren't among the suffering are able to live with ourselves. It would be easier if we didn't care about the suffering of others, but only very special sociopaths have that superpower. I am surprised by how many of them there are, though. That's another thing that keeps me able to do the day-to-day -day living I seem obligated to do. My forgetfulness. 
I have so many people worth loving in my life that it's unimaginable that there are great masses ready to do the most idiotic, destructive, brutal things to their fellow human beings and to the world. But sometimes one must take a rest and allow oneself to forget, to paint a lily pond or a haystack, or attend an exhibition of vaguely out-of-focus paintings if one is to be of use to anyone at all, even if that use is merely to hold one's tongue in gentle company and allow the gentle people their gentle time. This has been the moment of truth. Good day. Live from lands stolen from the Potawatomi people, this is hell. And by the way, Jeff was talking about racist stereotypes. And uh, if you are thinking that uh, finally they've come up with a TV series called Kung Fu that is not racist, well, they may have, but they also have come up with a new Kung Fu that is worse, far worse than the old Kung Fu. Live from lands stolen from the Potawatomi people, this is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Alex, do you have any more answers to this week's question from Hell? Yeah, and I think uh, less racist but still worse is probably going to be the MO of media for the next Oh, man, it's so bad. You know, in the original Kung Fu, like he's raised as a Shaolin monk. No, it, I don't know anything about in the original this, in Kung this one, In this one, she goes back to China for three years, learns how to be... A superhero, and then it comes back to twentieth century or twenty-first century America. It's it's awful. Everything about it is awful. What are you getting out of your Faustian bargain? What are you getting out of your Faustian bargain? Loose Nukes says one of those dollar store keyring fobs for discounts on my next Faustian bargain. Maybe you can get two of them. Uh, Red State Red says this is maybe my favorite reply to uh, what are you getting out of your Faustian bargain? Red State Red says two-day prime delivery. <laughs> Miss KB Colorado says, going to go with a musical duel. Haven't decided on fiddle or guitar. Don't think I'll win, though. Here's how that deal is going from the other side. And then posted a link to a song from the TV show Squidbillies called Hoof Prince, which I can't play because I probably get hit uh, with takedown notice from SoundCloud. Edison K says, I sold my morals for riches. I wanted my morals back, so I sold my sanity for my morals. Then I sold my soul for my sanity. I could really use some help getting my soul back. I really need him to whiteboard that for me. And finally, John says, Groupon discount? The answers I liked most were Rock Taster saying to live an American dream. All the one, all the people who seem to get the concept of a Faustian bargain right, because you wouldn't get something horrible in your Faustian bargain. Uh, I'm Nick saying I'm getting the infinite boredom that comes with immortality. See, that makes sense. Deira saying the end of capitalism. Mark saying the ability to cease caring about anything, anything at all. Uh, Dan Cole, Dan Kay saying, uh, Effer said my soul had no value on the secondary market. That's very clever. Adam Augusto saying, A monkey's paw. Garrett saying, Actual peace of mind for once in my life. That makes sense. Alexandra saying, More wishes. Daphne saying, $1,400, allegedly. I did like your response. Red State Red saying, Two day prime delivery because then you've sold your soul to Amazon. But I gotta say, my favorite answer to this week's question from hell is Don saying that, what are you getting out of your Faustian bargain? Solipsism. And that is the viewer theory that the self is all that can be known to exist, which really confuses your Faustian bargain. And I would love to be at that bargaining session, if you don't mind, Don. So Don is the winner of this week's question from hell. All you have to do is tell us 
what piece of merchandise you want by going to thecell.com, clicking on support, looking at all of our swag, and determining what you want. And we'll send it to you as quickly as, as we can in the mail. My answer to this week's question, Mel, what are you getting out of your Faustian bargain from what has happened to me over the past few months? I guess what I got is everyone is dying or nearly dying but me. I'm just suffering from chronic stomach and back problems. So I've done what a lot of our listeners have done, and that is made a really crap bargain. Meh, if you're not good at capitalism, how good of a bargain are you really going to make for your soul anyway? Thanks to everyone for sending in your answers to this week's question from hell. We start every week's live streaming show here at thisishell.com by revealing this week's hangover cure. And this week's hangover cure is the protein you get from meat. Thanks to this week's guests, including writer Rich Woodall, who posted the Baffler article, Mass Hypnosis, a new crop of investors would like you to keep vanilla ice on infinite repeat. And thanks to listener Sebastian for suggesting Rich. Also, thanks to public policy scholar Anna Artushina, who wrote the MIT Technology Review article, The EU is Launching a Market for Personal Data. You can follow Anna on Twitter at SocioAnna. And again, thanks to a listener for suggesting Anna. Thanks, Daniel. We really appreciate it. Thanks to yesterday's guest, disease ecologist Luis Fernando Chavez. He is co-author of the Pandemic Research for the People paper. Scientists say land use drives new pandemics, but what if land isn't what you think it is? You can follow Luis on Twitter at L. Chavez R. That's L C H A V E S R. And thanks to today's guest reporter, Cerise Castle, author of the ongoing 15 part investigative series, A Tradition of Violence The History of Deputy Gangs in the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. You can follow Cerise on Twitter at Cerise Castle. Find out more about Cerise at cerisecastle.me. Talk to you on Patreon when we will be playing our 2003 interview with Blondie bassist Gary Lockman, a.k.a. Gary Valentine, on what went wrong with the 60s, and I'm dealing with death and the future. But you can only hear that by subscribing to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this morning's show. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying simple, easy words... Everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>